welcome to the first episode of our Horses for Future podcast. For thousands of years, horses have been intimately woven into our history. Riding on their backs, we have spread out over the planet. We have ridden them to war. We have used them to pull plows. Now it turns out they can help us to a healthier future for the planet. Horse people can make a difference. Through these podcasts, we're going to learn together how. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and other books and DVDs on clicker training. I'm joined by author, veterinarian, sustainable economist, shamanic teacher, and climate crisis activist, Manda Scott. And this week, we're very excited to be joined by our guest, Jane Myers. Jane has been a pioneer of the Equicentral system, and we're going to be exploring with her what that means and how we can use it to create healthier pastures. And healthier pastures not only means that we're going to have healthier horses, but it also means we're going to have a healthier planet. It's a great win-win-win situation. So, Manda, welcome. Thank you. And and Jane, welcome. And, and we are, Manda and I are both so looking forward to talking to you about your work because we have lots of questions. Good. Good. Yes. Thank you very much yes. for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. So I first heard about your work and heard that you were out there from a mutual friend of ours, Don Saunders, who's up in yes. Scotland. Yes. Yes. And I have I've known Don for a long time and I was I've visited with her on a regular basis at her mm-hmm. home in Scotland. And for the first few years that I saw her, her she had what we normally see. We had the paddocks that were very low cut. She had a cleverly built track system for her horses. And she mm-hmm. had a, easy keeping horses. So she had yes. the mini Shetlands and she had a fjord. So horses that are often a challenge to mm-hmm. maintain, particularly out on grass. And then that's what I was accustomed to seeing. And the next year I came back and there's all this gorgeous, lush, gorgeous pasture mm-hmm. and that her horses are able to enjoy without fear of them getting too fat or laminitic. And so we had quite the long conversation about the equicentral system and I've been intrigued ever since. So would you like to just say a little bit about what you've been developing and why okay uh, well first of all Stuart and I now live in the UK but um, we lived in Australia for many years and um, we had a, a large-ish horse property over there it was 100 acres um, this was about 20 years ago and, and and can I interrupt for just a second so Australia has is were you in a wet part of Australia or a dry part? We're in Victoria, which is a temperate climate. So not unlike the UK, really. Okay. Later on, we lived in the tropical part, but okay. we started out in the temperate part. Okay. Um, and at the time, I worked for the University of Melbourne and was lecturing in equine science. Uh, because going back a bit further than that, I did a master's degree and I specialised in the grazing behaviour of horses. 
Um, and so that was my field, if you like. That was what I was particularly interested in. And then, so fast forward to when we lived in Australia and uh, we had quite a few horses, about 35 horses at a time, sometimes because I was educating horses and selling them on and all sorts of things. And Stuart was uh, just a horse husband at the time and he used to ask all sorts of awkward questions about why are we doing this and why, why is this all so hard and why don't we just open the gates and let the horses move themselves around? And I would say things like, because that's not what you do, Stuart, that's not how it's done. <laughs> Um, and and I spent a little while resisting him and then in the end I, he started to win me round and I started to listen to him a bit more and that's how it started out it started out as a labour saving idea but it's developed into much more than that because yeah it's just absolutely incredible how much it's developed even in ways that we never imagined so yes it's all about giving the horses choice Oh, and then going back again, I actually wrote a book for the Australian government about horse pasture management. That was a bestseller over there. I mean, I'm not in, talking in terms of um, you know Harry Potter or anything. Right, right. In terms of uh, books about horse pasture management, it was a bestseller. And we realised that people really needed to know this stuff. And um, initially we were talking along more traditional lines, but gradually we changed that around because it... We also started to do talks over there and that ended up being where we were actually traveling the country full time paid for by the Australian government who were very supportive of what we were doing. Um, and we were working alongside environmentalists and natural resource managers and all sorts of things. And we were learning from them at the same time and applying that knowledge to what we were teaching. Um, and also learning about um, also learning about permaculture, and, and that is actually how we developed our business name, Equiculture, by the way. Permaculture is an Australian concept. And I, I don't know that that's a term that everyone will be familiar with. So No, it's, it's actually about managing the land in such a way that you minimise the work, that you utilise the animals that do it at what they're best at. You utilise their behaviours. You, um, you, so for instance, in a permaculture system, you look at the chicken as having so many functions. It produces eggs, it produces, um, it, it eats grubs off the ground. It, so it, you know, it manages some of your pests for you. You can eat the chicken and so on and so on. Right. So that one animal, you're looking at all the different benefits it has to the system and how it can actually help to produce food. So even though permaculture is about food production, the, the ideas behind it can tie in very well with looking at how we manage horses. And that's just one, one part of what we were doing. We were also looking at Holistic Management International, which looks at rotational grazing systems and how we can use animals to repair the land. That is so interesting because that's where we get a lot of our, what we now teach about carbon sequestration and all that sort of thing. That's where we get those ideas from. And plus, you know, because my background is in equine grazing behavior, we, we know we brought a lot of that into it, how horses behave when they're at pasture, looking at how they behave in the wild, but also, just as importantly, looking at how they behave in the domestic situation, because when we keep them domestically and make them do certain things, they do things that damage the land, but that's our fault, not theirs. But yes. again, the equicentral system means we can change all that around. Um, yes. So, for instance, the only reason we get bare muddy gateways is because we close the gate and expect them to stand there for hours on end and that creates the bare muddy gateway whereas when we actually change that around and open the gate and let them bring themselves back 
to um, a hard standing area, which is what they actually want to do. No more muddy, muddy, no more bare muddy gateways. That's right. It's just amazing how once you actually give the horses choice, which is our big thing now, is choice. Uh, for instance, in in the wild, horses live in what's called a home range, so they have they move around their resources. The equicentral system is just a mini version of that. So you're actually creating a home range for them and then they move themselves around the resources. So they move themselves from where the shelter and the water is out to the grazing. But as soon as they finish grazing, they bring themselves back in voluntarily. And it's just beautiful how it works. Sorry, I'll let you get any word in edgeways. No, I, I, I love this because when I, when I heard Dawn's description of it and then read uh, some of your work, I looked at what I had created in my barn and said, oh, well, that's an equicentral system. And mm-hmm. and if it is, it, it works magnificently. Yeah. And you're exactly right. The horses bring themselves in. They can take themselves out. They're not congregating. We have no mud. Yeah, that's right. Mud disappears. You know, we just don't have... Uh, and and at the boarding barns that I've been at, where you have to, you're you're knee deep in mud at the gate, mm. as are the horses. It's just such a much healthier and yeah, more pleasant absolutely. environment all the way around. But then, I've had heard people say, "Well, that's just you know rotational grazing. We just we put the horses out in this field, and when mm. it starts to be eaten down a little bit, we move them over to that field." But I think you're describing something that's much more than that. Mm-hmm. It is very much more. The rotational grazing is a big part of it, but it's about um, horse owners learning to to be able to, for instance, as I talk to people often say to us, can you give us a program where if I've got five acres, how often do I move the horses on? And, you know, is it like 10 days here and then I move them on? And we, we say, no, it's about learning to look at the pasture and learn when it's time to move them on and on some properties that might be after four days and on other properties in other climatic conditions that might be two or three weeks so there's no it's about teaching horse owners to learn how to see how to see what they need to see and make that decision when it's time to move to the next pasture but other than that the horses what they're doing is just bringing themselves from the pasture. They're carrying out a grazing bout, which lasts typically between one and a half and three hours. That's a natural thing. And then as soon as they finish that grazing bout, because they know that the, the shelter, so where they can get away from the flies um, and the water and use and a nice laying down surface usually is back at the, the what we call the loafing yard. They just, beauty just bring themselves back in and they remove all that grazing pressure from the land voluntarily so they only take themselves out to graze and they come back in to do everything else so the snoozing so that standing around that they do for hours on end all takes place on a surfaced area rather than on your precious soil so that makes a huge difference huge difference soil conditions because it's that hoof activity that standing around on wet soil or on very dry soil is what you get in Australia more often, but even here in the UK and in, in the US as well, on that dry soil that shat, then shatters the organic matter. Um, so by removing all of that, and the horses are doing it quite voluntarily, by removing all of that, it just improves everything out of sight. And then you end up with healthier, more pasture, um, you end up with happier horses because they're, they're able to make choices now. 
And as we start out at our talks saying uh, and getting people to think about is that when you think about a lot of domestic horses, especially horses, the ones that are stabled a lot of the time, every single step they take is dictated by a human. Yes. Every single step. Whereas that's not the case for some, you know, for some horses that are getting to go out, that's a bit better. But with the equicentral system, nearly, you know, probably as much as 90% or more of, of the movement and where they decide where they want to be. And they decide that collectively as a herd, of course, but they are getting to make those choices themselves. And that is just a wonderful thing. And people report that their horses just calm down. They become so much more relaxed in, and so on compared to what they were like when they were being led here and led there. And right, we'll put you in the paddock now. You're going to stay there for nine hours until I get back after work. Uh, whether you want to be or not, um, and so on. All of that goes because now the horses make their own decisions. And that is, a, as a behaviourist, you know, that's why behaviourists are so, you know, so interested in what we do as well. Yes, yes. That is just wonderful that the horses now get to make their own decisions. And I find, because I, I live at the barn with my horses, and, and I so enjoy through that 24-hour cycle, I so enjoy mm. observing the choices that they're making and the patterns that they have through the course yeah. of a 24-hour cycle and then how it changes with the seasons, That's right. where their, how their preferences change yes. as the weather changes. And I have learned to expect, you know, they will, they will be hanging mm. out in this part at this time of the year, but as the weather gets colder, this, there'll be this change. And, mm. and of course, all of that contributes to my being able to monitor their health because I know what their patterns are, their daily daily cycles, their normal patterns are. And if there's an abrupt change, that's something I need to pay attention to. But you're right, I, I, I just enjoy watching them make those mm. choices themselves, having that, yes, that opportunity. That's right. But now, some, so some questions. As you've been posting so generously on the Horses for a Future yes. Facebook group, and you made a comment in one of your posts about when horse owners are first rehabbing their pasture, they'll often be, uh, how did you phrase it? It wasn't quite horrified, but what happens to mm -hmm. a pasture that's been degraded as it is coming back? At first, they often will panic by, at what they see, and but you just sort of breathe deeply. This is not what you're going to end up with. Could you talk a little mm. bit about that? Yes, I can do. Um, I should just mention, first of all, Stuart and I are not plant specialists. We've learned a lot over the years. Okay. Behaviour is our thing, but, uh, but we have learned a lot and from some very, very good people. So let's start with, let's start with, let's assume that I've just taken over a farm and the pastures have, they have had horses on them. They've been pretty beaten down, overgrazed. There is the the big section of mud by the gate, and we've got that very low to the ground, overgrazed pasture. And I'm now going to work on on changing this, on on rehabbing my ground. Yes. What over and I and I know it's going to change whether I'm on sand, if I'm mm. on clay, if I'm in 
uh, where I am in the in the New England area, which is right. very green, versus where I just was this past weekend out in California, which is completely different. I, I get that it's all going to be very different. Yeah. But are there general things that you can say about some of the things I would expect to see or go through? Yeah, right. Well, first of all, central to the equicentral system is having somewhere to get that great, to remove that grazing pressure. So first of all, that what we always say to people is the most important thing, first of all, is to create that loafing area. Now, that doesn't have to be a hard standing area straight away. It can be just a sacrifice paddock, which you then feed all your hay in, and then that hay mulches that ground, and that area can be, re- can be improving even while you're using it as a sacrifice paddock. So that's, that's the first step is to create the area that the horses come back to for shade, shelter and water and that you can remove pressure from the rest of the property by them doing that. So that's the initial step. Once you've decided where you're going to do that, the paddocks themselves, initially, so for instance, your typical muddy gateways, then as long as you're not in extreme drought, which will mean that you it's very hard to get hold of organic materials such as old hay and so on as long as you're not in drought then you can start to mulch those areas and we had a video about that um, last week yes you can use old hay or you can feed round bales so for instance if the seas if the time of year is dry you could actually have it where you have the horses going from the holding area out to just the gateway of the paddock that you you your first you could say you could put an electric fence around part of the paddock and just have the horses mulching the gateway. And by mulching, what we mean is you give them a round bale, you let the horses eat that hay and knock it around as well and let it all, you know, knock it down to the ground and trample it and add their manure to it. And that's called mulching. And then that area then they can be removed from and do the next gateway. Um, so that's one example. Or they can, you could be feeding the round bales in the sacrifice paddock. But basically what you're doing is you're removing that grazing pressure. So that means fastening the field off for a little while, but not necessarily for too long. But you first of all need to remove that grazing pressure and give the plants chance to start regrowing. Because most horse properties are under continuous grazing pressure. And that's why the, the mess that they are usually in. So you need to remove that pressure, let the plants start to recover, And initially you will see all sorts of weeds coming through because those weeds are already there in the soil. They're just waiting for their opportunity to get going. And weeds are not necessarily always a bad thing. In fact, in some cases, they're actually a good thing because what the weeds do is send down their long tap roots down to the minerals underground and pull those up to the surface. And and so those weeds are often, yeah, they're, they're, they're like, the pioneers, if you like, of better grass that will come later, more better plants that will come later. So people do tend to panic when they see weeds, understandably, because we've been conditioned to think that they're all they're bad. But in fact, weeds often are actually it can be quite good. There's there's certain ones that we we need to be careful of and avoid. But other than that, sometimes it's not a bad idea to let a paddock go through a couple of seasons of growing weeds and then we cut them back and let them regrow again and they're adding all that organic matter to the soil and meanwhile then the grasses are getting a chance to regrow every time you cut the weeds back the grasses get ahead of the weeds and so on and eventually that paddock will turn back 
to biodiverse pasture. And yes, you'll have a few weeds in there as well, but you'll, you'll have lots of different grasses in there as well. So, and also weeds are a good indicator of soil conditions. So uh, somebody who really knows about plants can actually read a pasture by looking at the weeds and tell you whether the, that pasture is deficient in certain uh, minerals and so on because the weeds that are growing in there are actually an indication sometimes of certain deficiencies or certain um, minerals that are too high for instance in a pasture but it takes somebody who knows about weeds and plants to be able to do that. Right, right. And actually in a lot of areas there often there's a lot of expertise so you in in Australia, for instance, you could get groups such as Landcare to come out and they'll actually identify what's in your pasture and help you yeah, to change it around into better pasture, say. But what I'm trying to say is it's not traditionally or more, more recently traditionally, the idea is you go in and you kill everything and start again. Whereas it's, our approach is, is you, it's usually better to let the plants grow, cut them back and just keep cutting them back cutting them back, let them drop all that, put all that organic matter into and onto the soil and eventually the grasses will come back because again the, the seeds for the grasses are in the soil usually. They just need their chance to get going, they just need a break from that continuous grazing pressure. Right and when you say cut them back, so how how high do you let your fields get before you're, you're cutting, you're mowing them? it's usually best not to let them go to seed because then they're just going to drop more seeds into the soil so if you can keep cutting them back before they go to the to, to seed all plants flower at different heights right right uh, but if, if you think about if you look at um the domestic a lawn for instance or if you think about a park where the bit that's been mowed a lot will be a much higher percentage of grasses and the bits around the edges that have not been mowed you'll usually see a lot more weeds do you know what I mean? In yes, yes. So that just shows you how mowing actually copies grazing. And it can be overdone, just like grazing. So when you mow and mow and mow, like on a, on a golf course, you end up with just really short grasses, the ones that can only survive in that regime. When you mow at a slightly higher level, you get, you get more biodiversity because you get some plants that can, their growth points are a little bit higher. And so they can cope with, say, being murdered, say, five centimetres, but you can't cope with being murdered one centimetre. So it's about that mowing is like a herd of animals going through and grazing it rapidly, which is actually good for pasture, but not too close. So by mowing it, you're just copying what happens with grazing animals, basically. And then you're leaving it for a little while to grow up again. And all the time it's getting stronger, more plants are getting going, different plants and so on. So does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I'm just thinking about in terms of when I cut my fields, and that is always the barometer that I use, that the, those plants that the horses are not wanting to eat, I want to cut before they have begun to produce seed. So that sounds good. That's That sounds spot on in terms of all of that. Amanda, do you want to jump in at any point? Yeah, I've got a number of questions. So first, my first question would be around the mowing. One of the things that I internalized possibly wrongly is that something like a tractor on the paddock is going to compact the soil and destroy the soil yeah. biome when what we're wanting to do is kind of increase the lift in the soil, aerate mm. it and, and get the roots down. And so 
I went to see a regenerative farmer here recently. He's got cattle, but, you know, the principles are the same. And we were looking at his fields and I was asking about weeds. He had he had docks. He only had two or three. And I said, what about the docks? And he said, well, every dock has around about 200,000 fertile seeds. And I haven't touched them in the last three years. And those three are it for this year. So my guess is that at the moment the docks are being outcompeted and in any case I want them because they're sending down really deep roots and and what we want is those really deep roots. Mm. So what I took away from that was I haven't touched the pastures in terms I had a, a yarrow outbreak this year and I don't know you know yarrow is a herb yes. I, I think it's quite interesting some mm. plants are herbs some are weeds and and the boundary line between the two is often a little bit blurred so I left the yarrow as it was because my understanding is that yarrow puts you know three meter roots down and I want it bringing up the minerals so how would you first of all what would you obviously let me be coherent we're in talking about Australia the states the UK Europe That's right. everybody has different pasture plants and it would be difficult to go through them all Yes. Uh, you know, obviously in order, but there must be some that you just want to leave. Absolutely. And there must be also ways of, if I don't want to put a tractor over the land because it's mm. damp, or how do yes. I decide yeah. what, what to do? When I was talking about mowing, when, when we had 100 acres, we actually never had a tractor. We actually managed with a ride-on mower. Okay a four-wheel drive that we used to harrow the paddocks with, but we also had a neighbour who had 300 head of cattle. And so we used to just let him put them in for two days, usually, that's all it took. And they would just, you know, do the work, you know, do a better job than a mower. So they would go in and, yeah, completely annihilate the paddock, but in a really short, it, that's what pasture thrives on, is short periods of high stress, but for a really short period then the animals move on again because that's what happens in the wild. Huge herds mm -hmm. of grazing okay. animals come along, move along the across the land, putting a huge amount of stress on the land, but they're dropping their manure. They're biting each mm -hmm. plant once or usually at the most twice. They're moving forward. Their hooves are, are churning up the soil and, and they're actually churning up their own manure. And that manure is falling into the little uh, spaces that they create with their hooves already with seeds mm -hmm. from the previous day's grazing. And that's how pasture thrives. And so the more we can copy that in the domestic situation, the better. And that's uh, if you have, uh, for instance, a neighbor with a different class of animal to you, so a different species mm -hmm. of animal to you, mm -hmm. that is the best option is that right. you get them in there for a short period of time because there's massive benefits to that. But if you you don't, then usually just a ride on mower is enough. Or even if, if you don't have that, just a hand scythe. You go in mm -hmm. and all the tall plants, you cut them back with a hand scythe. Because one of the things I wanted to say as well is, because um, uh, I was listening to your uh, podcast, uh, the, your previous podcast, Manda, which was wonderful. But I also wanted to add that one when people say... Um, oh, what can we do as horse owners? You know, what 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 can we do? One thing that's wonderful about horse owners is that whereas a farmer is in charge of hundreds or in Australia thousands of acres or hundreds of thousands of acres, with horse owners, each each horse owner is usually only in charge of 10, 20, 30 acres or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively small space of land, small area of land. 
So therefore, it's very easy to do the right thing. So we meet farmers all the time who say, we actually love what you teach. But for us to change around now is so hard because they've invested in so much machinery and the way, you know, the way they do things, they have so much invested yes. in it. But, 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 the gut. don't have any of that. So they can change so easily. And you average horse owner doesn't have a tractor. And mm -hmm. we usually advocate you don't need a tractor because most of it can be done either by yourself, by the horses, by neighbours animals, or Your if scythe. you have a four-wheel drive or a ride on mower, buy that. There's so much you can do. And we managed 100 acres without ever owning a, a tractor. So, so yeah, there's, you don't have to have that um, heavy machinery in there. And you don't have the expense of somebody coming and doing it and so on. Because, again, our system developed from, like a lot of good ideas, it developed because we didn't have any money. Um, mm -hmm. And so what was really good was... The property we had in Australia was covered in fabulous native pasture. But at the time, to our untrained eye 20 years ago, we thought we needed to rip it all up and put ryegrass in. And luckily, we couldn't afford to do that. And in the meanwhile, we actually learned that the pasture we had was fabulous. Look, so luckily, we never actually... Whereas if we... What I'm trying to say is if we'd had a lot of money, we'd have got in, gone in there, we'd have ripped all the pastures up, we'd have put all the wrong fences in the wrong place... We'd have done so many things just because of my traditional background, just and because we could afford to, whereas because we couldn't afford to do that, everything we did, we had to think about. And luckily, most of that meant not doing too much. It meant using the animals and using our own labour and not spending too much. So if we didn't spend anything on fertiliser, for instance, which is a good thing because it would have killed the native pasture um, and so on. So... It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be labour intensive, particularly. And especially if you're getting your animals to do what they are absolutely wonderful at, then they do most of the work voluntarily. Brilliant. And I, I would like to say um, I went to visit a farmer near us who farms 1500 acres. So it's, you know, mm. in, in Britain, that's quite a lot. Quite large in the UK. And his landowners made him shift to regenerative farming. He really didn't want to. And now, two years in, he's selling his machinery. He's not buying any seed. He says he's, he's spending so much less money. He's working yes. less hard and his animals are mm. doing better and he's making more. Yes. And so if you speak to other farmers going, you know, we can't do this. Absolutely. Yes. Not only can you, Absolutely. but we're going to have to if we're going to you know, meet the climate yes. challenge. So um, horse people can do it and farmers can do it. I think that's the absolute glory Absolutely. of this. And it's easy, easy for horse owners because they're only yes, in charge small of areas. five, ten yes. acres. Easy, so easy. We did a talk at Nep Castle in the UK last year. And that's a fascinating project down in, um, down in the south of England. And they've done just what, what you were talking about there. Um, and they now they're now making more money and spending a fraction. In fact, they're not really spending anything compared to what they spent before um, producing organic beef. And before they were just making a loss every year. And now they're using horses to graze alongside cattle because they complement each other so well. And they are, you know, massive. They've massively changed the property around. It's just incredible. And they've got all these animals, all these species of butterflies and all sorts of things coming back to the land that haven't been seen in years and years. So it's wonderful to see. How would you answer, so supposing you've got, say, four horses and five acres, which is something that I see around here quite a mm. lot. Yeah. And it's hard then to 
give the grass time to recover because the whole idea is you you graze it to not too low not overgrazed but you graze it down Mm -hmm. and then you let the horses move on but and in high summer that's that's fine because the grass is growing quite fast spring and autumn when the grass is growing more slowly so so now Mm. how do you tell people to manage the pasture so that it doesn't become overgrazed well we we generally find especially in the uk and in the wet parts of australia and america even for horses on five acres is usually once you actually start to use an equicentral system so you're maximizing the grass growth a lot of them actually end up with too much grass because they if there's such a you know if you can imagine it and then they actually start doing what we call standing hay where in in the winter of of foggage in the winter they actually uh, graze their pastures in the winter where before they used to have to keep the horses in all winter they now start to be able to graze them through the winter on foggage, which again, that's another subject which we can perhaps get onto later. Um, but the once you actually let the grasses go so that they never get below that magic five, around five centimeters, they recover so rapidly when mm. whenever the conditions are right, that you end up with more and more and more grass each year. And as long as you have this, this holding area, which, as I said, can start out as a sacrifice paddock, but as soon as you can afford it, it needs to be hard standing. And in, in many cases, especially in the UK, people already have that hard standing. They're just not using it properly. So, for instance, a lot of horse properties in the UK already have a, conc- a stable block and a concrete yard, but the horses are fastened out of it all day. Mm. And all they need to actually do is open the gate and the horses just happily come back and stand on the concrete yard. So, and in Australia, people are more likely, to, and the US, people are more likely to have their own arena, menage. So, um, again, once you once you get them there, them thinking about it properly, they start to use that as the holding area because a well-built arena can do that. And when you think about it, you, you put all that money into an arena to ride on it a few times a week hmm. in many cases, and yet this very expensive area can double up as an absolutely fabulous holding area. So most people, many people actually have something they can use. They just have to think about what they have differently. Um, so once you have that holding area, then you've got somewhere to feed the hay. So obviously if it's your arena, you'll feed that all just at one end or you'll try and build a little area off the off to the side with say rubber mats on it where you feed the hay because you don't want too much organic matter getting into your surface. But the there's you know there's lots of ways around it. But once you get them coming back to this holding area, your pasture is under a fraction of the stress it was under before. So even five acres and four horses wouldn't worry me in the slightest in in terms of management once you get it once you start managing it correctly. And another yeah. So as I say, we can get onto foggies later on. But so if somebody has a lot of horses, so just say they had even more than that then it just means they're going to have to feed more hay. But if you think about it, they would have had to feed a lot of hay anyway, because once you go over a certain amount of horses on a certain area of land, that land is never going to produce enough for those horses if Mm. there's far too many animals. You're going to have to buy hay, whereas at least with the equicentral system, you are maximising what pasture you can grow, and you're going to get the most out of it, even if it means supplementing, say, the other half of their diet with bought in hay. But ideally... You want it so that the land is producing as much feed as possible 
and it will do with the equicentral system. In fact, I had a, a letter from an email from somebody the other day who said, I've only got two and a half acres, I've got two horses. Is it too small to do an equicentral system? And my reply was, the less land you've got, the more important it is to do this because it's the only way you're going to get grass um, over a long period of, you know, sustainably. Whereas if you do anything else, you just, you know, that two horses on two and a half is you're just not going to have grass in, in a couple of years to come because it will all be overgrazed. Whereas at least this way, you will get as much grass as could possibly be grown in that area. How do you overcome the issues of exercise because because of the cattle systems the mob grazed cattle systems mm. that i've seen they are keeping animals on really quite small areas and then moving them on based on yes. the dry matter of the grass quite quickly and obviously we want our horses so you've got you know your five horses on two acres if you if they were cattle you'd divide those five acres two acres into very small areas and you'd move them on rapidly and with horses you don't you want the horses to be able to move more Yes. Great question. But I'm going to interrupt here. Jane has given us a lot to think about in terms of how to manage our pastures. So this seems like a good stopping place. And we'll pick up at this point in part two of our conversation with Jane Myers. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about her Equicentral system, visit her website at equisystem.net. Again, that's equisystem.net. You can find Manda at mandascott.co.uk. And I can be found at theclickercenter.com. Again, that's theclickercenter.com. And you can also find me through my training podcast, equosity.com. Remember, horse people can make a difference. So goodbye for now. And we'll pick up again next week.